Welcome back. I mentioned earlier the whole issue of Roe v. Roe v. Wade has been an issue before and after the ruling by the Supreme Court back in January of 1973. We've come to a point where Texas and Mississippi, both states, have taken some pretty draconian measures to work around Roe v. Wade, and it's worked its way back up to the Supreme Court. This is a big deal. It's a big deal for women. It's a big deal for men. It's a big deal for futures. It's a big deal for our society, and it's certainly a big deal in our community. So we're going to talk about it. I'm pleased to have joining us this morning from Planned Parenthood, Paula Thornton-Greer and Bridget Leahy. Um, Good morning, ladies, and welcome to WVON. How are you today? Good morning. Thank you for having us on. I hope you're doing well. I am. Good morning. Good morning. Paul, it's taking you much too long to come on here, so we're going to have to deal with that some other time. But I'm glad. I know. (laughs) I thank you for having us. Well, I'm glad you're here now. Let's talk about, uh, I just gave a, a general overview but if you can, Paula, from your perspective, just tell us uh, where parent, Planned Parenthood stands on, on this issue. Sure. Well, first, let me, let me give a level set for those who may not know what Planned Parenthood is. So Planned Parenthood of Illinois is probably the most trusted provider of reproductive health care um, in the state and, and Planned Parenthood in general across the country. So we have tremendous health care professionals that are dedicated to offering people high quality, affordable medical care. And with Planned Parenthood of Illinois, we do a couple of things, right? We are healthcare providers, we are educators, and we are advocates. And we're committed to serving all people in all our communities with care and respect. We have 17 health centers across the state, um, as well as offerings via telehealth. Some services that we provide, just to level set for your listening audience, we do STI testing and treatment, you know, comprehensive birth control services, HIV testing and counseling, vasectomies, yes, vasectomies, one of the biggest misconceptions about Planned Parenthood is that our health centers are only for women. And as you mentioned in the introduction, what is happening in this country affects not only women, but other people, including those that identify as male as well. So we are at a point where we are seeing the fall of Roe. And I will have Bridget comments on that, but I do want to say that this is not something that happened overnight. This is something that has been in the process of being dismantled. But Roe v. Wade is at risk like never before. It's been under mounting attacks for years and years, and now because our federal courts are packed with judges who have records that are hostile to reproductive rights, the fundamental constitutional rights, it is poised to fall. I appreciate Paula, that you um, you step back to give us some sense of Planned Parenthood. Let's go deeper into that. You mentioned there are 17 health centers that you have. Is that around the city or around the state? That is around the state. So we have 17 across the state. We have seven health centers that are located in the Chicago area, including Austin and Roger Park and Inglewood. So there are 17 across the state that go from Springfield uh, through downstate all the way over to Aurora and Waukegan. So until we spoke some time ago, I didn't realize that 
as many people come to Planned Parenthood for health care as they do. Can you give us a sense of the demographics of the people who come there? Sure, absolutely. So we serve Planned Parenthood of Illinois. We serve approximately 60 to 70,000 patients per year, and it is across the demographic spectrum. Um, So we, of course, serve the black community, the Latinx community, rural areas, urban areas, uh, transgender population. We are there for everybody and anybody that needs us, which is why it's very important that our services are available across the state. Because as we all know, Illinois, though one of, Chicago is one of the most segregated cities. Illinois is a very diverse uh, state. And Bridget, I'm going to bring you in shortly, but I got to stay here for just a moment because Planned Parenthood actually has a storied history, and some of it is challenging, particularly to the people who are listening to our station. So, Paula, why don't we go there for a moment and talk about um, the origins of Planned Parenthood, Margaret Sanger, eugenics, and how we got, how we, how you began, and how you got from there to where you are today. Absolutely. It's something that we have to talk about. So what we know today as Planned Parenthood began, oh gosh, in the early 1900s with Margaret Sanger, who was a a nurse. And Sanger advocated for birth control and led a movement to abolish federal and state laws. Um, prohibiting publication of information about sexuality and contraception and human reproduction. So in 1916, Sanger opened the first birth control clinic and founded Planned Parenthood Federation of America. So up until recently, right, recently, Planned Parenthood has you know, really failed to own the impact of our founders' actions. We, along with others, have often defended Sanger as a protector of bodily autonomy and self-determination while excusing her association with white supremacist groups and eugenics as this sort of unfortunate, well, that was then, and that was a product of her time. And so until recently, we um, have sort of hidden behind the belief that, you know, what she was doing, the way that she was approaching it was the norm for the people of her class and era. And as has been done throughout history with respect to several topics, you know, being sure to excuse it or try to soften it to name her work alongside black freedom fighters such as W.E. Du Bois. So it's You know, we are standing up and, you know, I'm very proud of this organization for bringing it out from under the rug and saying the thing. Saying the thing is very important. Saying that Sanger aligned with the eugenics movement and that caused harm is very important. But more important than that is, you know, reckoning with Margaret Sanger but also reckoning with ourselves and taking the steps that we need to take, which we are, to focus on the work that needs to be done for healing and moving forward, and importantly, ensuring that everybody has the respectful access to the services that we provide. 
And just for clarity, eugenics is um, eugenics was used really to try and create master races, to try and say that there are people who, um, for whatever their frailties are, we can remove them, we can reduce them, we can help to have a better society by having better people and doing things to try and and keep people from um, reproducing or otherwise being part of our society. It's kind of what we think about when we think of Hitler and the extermination of the Jews. So uh, just coming full circle on that, which is important to know what the origins of this organization is and important to understand what you're doing now to put this all in context so that it's not seen as just one or the other, but, um, you know, understanding and knowing that doesn't say we go protest Planned Parenthood, but it says we understand where its where its origins were and what it's doing today. Uh, that's really helpful to so many women and so many people throughout our country. Yeah, thank you, Rufus. I think it's, you know, we hold ourselves accountable um, that we be clear and transparent about the progress that we're making and the steps that we are taking to to move forward. So we are holding ourselves under a microscope um, to to move forward in a different manner. And Bridget, um, we didn't let you talk in the first segment, so <laughs> other than say hello, but why don't you pick up from um, from where Paula left off earlier in um, talking about Roe v. Wade at risk as never before, given the judiciary that's impaneled throughout the country. What's your sense and what's the organization's sense of where we are with this uh, situation? Well, I, I want to um, transition from what you discussed with Paula and lead into Roe v. Wade uh, because there is a connection there. Um, as, as Paula said, Planned Parenthood has uh, is not the same organization that it was when it was first founded. And we are really working um, in these recent years to uh, move our values forward. And that means uh, believing that all people, every race, religion, gender identity, ability, immigration status, geography, geography, Everyone are full human beings with the right to determine their own future and to the right to decide without coercion, without judgment, whether and when to have children. And this is directly connected to the moment we are in with the Supreme Court and with what is at stake with Roe v. Wade. So if we go back almost 50 years, the Supreme Court made its decision in Roe v. Wade that everyone in this country, based on your right to privacy, has the ability to make decisions about whether and when to have children, and specifically that it is your right to decide whether or not to have an abortion and to be able to access that abortion. And what we are faced with now um, is after uh, a steady strategy by those who oppose access to abortion, uh, a steady strategy to chip away at that right. And now we are at the point where the Supreme Court is poised to uh, look at two cases which will have a direct impact on the Roe v. Wade decision 
and have the potential to actually overturn it. And, and this is important because we know that this will have a devastating effect for people across the country. But in particular, it will be harmful to communities of color. And that's because, as Paula acknowledged, systemic racism has affected every aspect of our lives, including the U.S. healthcare system. And we already know that there are disparities in these communities. It is a result of racism and coercive reproductive policies in our country. And it will affect people's access to reproductive health care if Roe falls. It will directly impact people's ability to make those very personal, very important decisions for themselves and take away their autonomy to make those decisions. And and we just cannot let that stand. We have to stand in opposition to efforts to take away those rights because we all should have them and we all deserve to have them and they are fundamental to our ability to be full um, participants in society and and be fulfilled individuals. Bridget, can you take a moment and walk us through where we stand, what Roe v. Wade, what the ruling was, because it does give three different levels where um, one can terminate a a pregnancy uh, throughout its course. Can you explain that to us? Sure. So Roe v. Wade made that decision was uh, specific to a trimester structure of looking at abortion and pregnancy. And it said that abortion was a fundamental right, which is the highest standard of right up there with your freedom of speech, um, uh, your right to vote, uh, those kinds of things. We all know how some of these rights have been attacked also by the same people who are attacking your reproductive rights. Um, But the trimester system set up that... uh, Government could not regulate abortion or restrict it in the first trimester. That's the first three months of pregnancy, um, which uh, when you're in the medical world, dating a pregnancy starts from your last menstrual period. So it's the first 14 weeks of pregnancy. Uh, And then in the second trimester, you can regulate abortion for health and safety purposes. Um, And then in the third trimester, abortion could be restricted only to protect the life and health of the woman. Now, that was modified subsequently. There have been several court rulings over the years since Roe v. Wade modifying the decision and uh, chipping away at the decision. So we fast forward to another court decision that changed the standard from a fundamental right, our highest standard, to undue burden, which means that if um, you can add restrictions on access to abortion as long as they were not an undue burden, meaning that they didn't rise to a level that would be too extreme um, for people to be able to access the care they needed. And that court decision also... um, 
laid out a framework that was around viability, which is the framework we currently use in the law. It's what we use here in Illinois. Uh, viability to make it um, more understandable for all of us, because this is kind of lingo, right? Legal lingo. Um, Viability means the point in the pregnancy when a fetus can survive outside of the womb. So um, this can be uh, the time when um, you can have a baby and the baby will survive, right? Before that period of time, um, the decisions are left between the person and their doctor, uh, and the government can impose regulations, but they, they cannot be too high of regulations to access care. After viability, you can only perform an abortion uh, when uh, the, the fetus is viable, or is not, I'm sorry, not viable, and uh, the woman's life is uh, in danger or her health is in danger. So um, it, it really modernized because trimesters were kind of an arbitrary system. And, and what the, the court did was recognize that there is actually a medical period of time when you can look at this and, and say that the state has a greater interest now in protection of life once that fetus becomes viable. Welcome back. It's Rufus Williams here on The Morning Show. We have a powerful group of women here talking about the Supreme Court and Roe v. Wade and where it's going. We've been discussing this with uh, Planned Parenthood representatives Paula Thornton Greer, the chief external affairs officer, and Bridget Leahy, the senior policy director, the senior director of public policy. We're also now joined by Madeline Carlisle and Abigail Adams, political writers for Time magazine, who authored a piece about the Supreme Court's Texas abortion case, I'm sorry, Abigail Abrams, uh, who offered a piece on the Supreme Court's Texas abortion case, giving states more power than ever. And Abigail and Madeline, welcome to WVON. How are you ladies this morning? Great. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. Indeed. Glad you're here. So talk about, talk to us if you would, about what's going on in Texas and SB SB eight and um, how that works and why that is coming under uh, scrutiny. Sure. So uh, at this point, the Texas law SB eight has been in effect since September first, and the law um, bans almost all abortions in Texas, starting at the point of um, fetal cardiac activity, which means when uh, uh, that cardiac Activity in the fetus can be detected only happens about six weeks into pregnancy. And that's, uh, for context, typically before many women know that they're pregnant. So it's resulted in really a ban on almost all abortions in the state um, in Texas over the past, you know, two months. And now the Supreme Court has agreed to take up on a really expedited basis that uh, two lawsuits against that law, and they'll be hearing those cases on Monday. So Texas went even further in how that law should be enforced, which also comes before the Supreme Court as well, correct? Right. So yeah, really what the, oh, take it right. Go ahead. 
Oh, I was just going to say um, the the question going before the Supreme Court is not whether or not SB 8 violates the constitutional right to abortion that was established in Roe v. Wade. Rather, what the court is going to look at is the legality of the law's unusual private enforcement mechanism and whether or not the Department of Justice and Texas abortion providers can actually sue in federal court to challenge that lawsuit. So it's a really narrow point that the court is looking at, but it could have really wide sweeping implications. So what Texas has suggested is that anyone who knows anything about anyone receiving an abortion within that six week period or after that early period um, can also citizens arrest. They can also um, report, file, arrest, or uh, stop people from having that happen. And they, is that correct? Right. So basically what they've done is usually in a law, you would say the governmentals are the people enforcing the law. And here that Texas actually uh, specifically said government officials can't do it. And as you said, any private citizen uh, can enforce the law by suing anyone who they believe has an abortion or, in the words of the law, aided or abetted an um, abortion. So that includes, you know, someone's friend who helps them get to an abortion clinic, some an Uber driver potentially, uh, staff at an abortion clinic, all of those kinds of folks could be sued um, if someone believes they've violated this law. So, Bridget, help us understand why, what they're doing is not taking, they're effectively saying that it's okay uh, to, to have this rigid law in place that effectively stops abortions, um, but they're focused on the other aspect of it. Talk about the fact of why they are not uh, dealing with the whole issue of abortions in this, in this short period. So with the Texas law specifically, there are lawsuits filed in federal court challenging its constitutionality, but that part of the litigation hasn't made it up to the Supreme Court yet. What has made it up to the Supreme Court is um, pleas to stop enforcement of the law while the litigation is ongoing. So typically what you would do in a case where you believe a law is unconstitutional is you file a lawsuit and then you ask the judge to stay the enforcement and put an injunction on it to stop it being enforced while you're litigating because the potential is that people's constitutional rights are being violated and and it would be too much harm to allow the law to be in effect and waiting for that final ruling. That is usually what happens, and we have seen that repeatedly across the country when unconstitutional laws have been introduced. This time, the federal courts at the lower level um, said, no, we're, we're not going to keep the law from going into effect. You can have your lawsuit and challenge it, but we're going to allow the law to go into effect in part because of this new and different enforcement mechanism. Um, you're not suing. It's basically a technical thing where you're not suing the right people, right? Normally, when we go in and sue, um, we'd sue the governor and the attorney general of the state of Illinois, right? If you're, if you're, if Illinois had a law that we thought was unconstitutional. Those would be the people who enforce it. But in Texas, with this law, it's literally millions of people can enforce it, and none of them are government officials. 
So that is what has gone through. And in the appeals of asking for it to get an injunction to stop enforcement, it went through the lower levels. And now it hit the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court agreed and said, oh, this enforcement's different. We you don't have the grounds to come to court and and say that you you want it to be stayed. Therefore, we're not going to stay it. And um, that's basically what they said the first time around it came to the court. Now we have two other um, lawsuits pending um, that have made appeals to the Supreme Court. One is by the Justice Department, the Biden administration. And finally, they agreed on November 1st, the court will hear arguments, but not arguments on the constitutionality, just on this limited whether or not the law should be in effect while the litigation goes on. Um, This is a lot of legal stuff and technicalities. I want to remind everybody that the on the ground reality in Texas, while this because these courts have failed to put in an injunction, what it means is that millions of people in Texas have had their constitutional right to access abortion taken away from them. And people are forced to leave the state um, because of this fear that a provider or a friend or a driver or your pastor who counsels you, that they could all be sued. So people are leaving the state of Texas to get care that they need. Or in some cases, people are being forced to continue pregnancies against their will. So while we're talking about all this legal stuff, I want to remind everybody that real lives are being impacted by what's going on with the courts. Yeah, Bridge, I'm so glad you went there because that was the exact next question I was going to ask Paula. What is it, in fact, that ladies are doing in the state of Texas who are having to deal with this? And I know we're talking about Texas. This is also hit in Mississippi, not at the same level, but it's one that's there. Florida and other states are looking to replicate the kind of thing that's happening in Texas. And as this reaches up to the Supreme Court, there's got to be an immediate impact for those who are being um, who are pregnant, who are looking to do things for all the reasons in which women need to have control of their bodies. Um, something's got to be happening with them as they go through it now. But, Paul, I'd like for you to go a little bit further into that. Um, before we went to break, Paul, I threw out the question to go further into what Bridget shared about how this is impacting people on the ground. Yeah, thank you, Rufus. You know, without question, we're at a crisis point right now. And right now, what we're seeing is a world, is what a world without the right to abortion could look like. We are seeing that in Texas, where, as Bridget noted, abortion is banned for the overwhelming majority of abortion patients who really have to travel out of state for care. That is just ridiculous and or carry a pregnancy to term against their will. So let's think about that, right? Two days after SBA went into effect, we here in Illinois started seeing patients from Texas to get their abortion care. Think about everything that that entails. And the vast majority of abortion patients, somewhere along 70, 75% are people with low income. Approximately 50% earn below the federal poverty level. Imagine 
being that person, having to make that decision and not being able to get the care to which you're entitled in your state and having to make plans to travel. It affects your family, your job. Can you get the time off? Do you have the money to travel? So again, this is a real inflection point for this country. And as we face the constant dismantling and the fall of Roe, the women, the trans men and non-binary and gender non-conforming people who would lose access to abortion if Roe is overturned, let me be clear, it includes at least 5.3 million black people, 5.7 million Hispanic or Latinx people, 1.1 million Asian people, and nearly, you know, 340,000 American Indian or Alaska Native people of reproductive age. This impacts everybody. And so it's important for us in Illinois to acknowledge, to understand these barriers, the financial barriers that I spoke about a minute ago, to getting an abortion are instrumental and insurmountable for many in Texas. And we could see this, you know, begin to trickle across the country even more. And I want to underscore too, Rufus, that in a country where black women are three times more likely than white women to die from largely preventable pregnancy-related complications. And please let me correct myself. Black people um, are three times more likely than white people to die from largely preventable pregnancy-related complications due to racism and discrimination in care. Being forced now to carry the term against one's will and put their lives at risk in the process is quite frankly something that this country should be very ashamed of. Texas has one of the worst maternal maternal mortality rates in the country. So you can see how that just heightens what is happening. And finally, I'll just say, Texas, is a tip of a very sharp iceberg. You know, I think Texas is just a preview of the obstacles that will emerge if the Supreme Court upholds a Mississippi law that bans most abortions after 15 weeks. And that case is gonna be heard, I believe, on December 1st. And when I tell you that cascade of legal changes that will happen across dozens of states in this country, This is what we're talking about when we're saying that Roe is falling. Indeed. And um, Paula, can you also add, there are varying reasons why people decide to terminate their pregnancies. And it's not only because they made a mistake, uh, but share some of the other reasons why this would be important to continue. Sure, absolutely. There, there are a number of reasons. I mean, it's all a very personal decision, which is why it is one's own choice. It could be economic. It could be, you know, not having the, not being at a place in your life where you have uh, the the money uh, that you feel that you need in order to 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 to, to raise or start a family. You could be in. Uh, an, an abusive relationship where your life, your safety could be at risk. 
it could be your physical safety will be at risk that the it is not just viable for you to continue the pregnancy it could be you just don't want to start a family and that is your choice it could be as i mentioned domestic violence it could be you want to continue your education and you have a plan for your you are planning your parenthood and this timing is just not right and so you are making this decision so it varies from person to person there are a thousand different reasons why a person will make this decision and a thousand different reasons why they should be allowed to do so and these barriers that are being constructed across the country uh, need to come down and if I can just add it's also understanding that is why it's critically important that Illinois is a uh, safe space a safe haven if you will for people to come to get access to the care that they need and Bridget has done a lot of work uh, with our partners across the state and ensuring that Illinois is as strong becomes as strong as we can be in protecting those rights and that access. And I want to come back. Thank you for that, Paul. I want to come and there are that's not even mentioning the medical reasons why people would need to to terminate pregnancies. But as you said, there are as many reasons as there are people as to why they would make the decision, which is why it's so important that women have the right to choose uh, what they do, because nobody can understand what all these situations are unless they are the people who are in them. Um, I want to come back to Abigail and Madeline, because in this issue going before the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court's decision is far reaching even beyond uh, the issue of, of abortion as we talk about the enforcement mechanism. And that's concerning some other groups as well. Can you speak to that, if you would? Sure. So because the, what the Supreme Court is looking at here is this private enforcement mechanism we've talked about, you know, if they allowed um, the Texas law to not be challenged in court, basically it would make it so that other um, states could uh, would be encouraged to pass similar laws like this for um, abortion, but also um, on, it could open it up to other issues. So, you know, legal experts have really warned since this law was introduced in Texas that it could be used beyond abortion about things um, from all perspectives that people might be concerned about. You could ban any basically civil right that would otherwise be protected. You could ban owning a gun. You could ban gay marriage. You could ban all kinds of things um, if you can use this kind of law to get around our traditional court system. And that's really the understanding of how the Supreme Court works, because when we think back to Brown versus the Board of Education, it was really allowing um, access and public all public accommodations, which hit every place, not just schools. And so just as this is, this enforcement hits more than just what we're speaking to currently. Um, I think someone else was just about to say something before I went in. Oh, I was just going to say, uh, just to follow up on Abigail's point, that there's uh, a wide variety of groups that are concerned about this across the political spectrum. Um, so 
progressive groups have fi- filed support, uh, filed briefs before the court in support of the Department of Justice and Texas abortion providers lawsuits, but so have um, gun rights groups, um, more conservative groups. It, it really spans the political gambit, and lots of different groups are concerned, to exactly your point, about how wide-reaching a Supreme Court ruling on this could be, um, and they argue it could really help states attempt to delay or even completely evade judicial review for laws that suppress civil rights, they argue. And so, yeah, exactly to your point, um, this could have a much wider impact, impact a variety of different groups across the ideological spectrum. Yeah, I want to come back and just talk about why this is important to a group like a gun rights group, which seems contrary to what we may otherwise be here in that ruling. But uh, before we went to break, Madeline, you had pointed out um, these other groups who get involved in this in, in concern around where the Supreme Court is now. And in your article, you all speak specifically about the um, Firearms Policy Coalition. Why would this be concerning to them? Right. So the Firearms Policy Coalition filed a pretty scathing brief um, before the Supreme Court saying that this law uh, is not, while it on the surface may appear to be about abortion, they say, quote, it's actually about Texas's cavalier and contemptuous mechanism for shielding from review potential violations of constitutional rights, unquote. So basically their concern here is that if the Supreme Court upholds the SB style of law, meaning that in order to challenge, uh, if the Supreme Court says SB 8 can stand, in order to challenge uh, the enforcement against you, someone has to break the law, uh, provide an abortion after fetal uh, cardiac activity or, or quote, aid and abet someone getting an abortion after fetal cardiac activity cardiac activity and then take on the risk of being sued and then challenge that lawsuit. And so the concern here is that many providers just don't want to take on that risk and so it could create a chilling effect that discourages people from providing abortion even if ultimately uh, this law is found to be unconstitutional. And so the concern here for gun rights groups is that similarly structured laws could also delay and discourage other people from uh, doing things because they worry they will take on this risk of being sued, even if ultimately that law is unconstitutional. So say there's a law that prevents people from carrying guns, even if ultimately that law is going to be found to be unconstitutional because it violates a Supreme Court case called uh, Holt v. Heller. Um, The concern in the short term is that it would create this chilling effect and discourage people from carrying guns because they're worried they're going to be sued. And so it could really have wide ranging effects and help, if SBA is upheld, help these states evade or delay judicial review in the federal court system as that has historically been used to challenge the laws that are thought to be unconstitutional. Got it. So Bridget, where do things stand right now in Texas? Is it that uh, the Texas law stands until the Supreme Court decides and people race to Illinois to try to take care of um, uh, dealing with their personal situations? Or where do things stand right now? So where things stand is that the Texas law is in effect, which means that um, if, if you are pregnant in Texas and want to end your pregnancy, you have up until six weeks. And if you don't 
make that deadline, you're going to be either forced to travel or to continue the pregnancy. And the court could, on uh, after the arguments on November 1st, decide to stay the law and hold its enforcement, which would be wonderful, and we certainly hope that it will do that, but there's also a possibility that it won't, and it will allow the law to continue to go into effect. If, if that is what happens, we can see that as a signal uh, to other states that they could move forward with similar laws. And it also, you know, you never want to predict what justices will do, but it could be a signal that the court is open to uh, reconsidering uh, precedent around abortion. So we're all going to be watching on November 1st to see what the court does. So I know you said that it's hard to predict what they would do, but you know I'm going to ask you all that question before we're done. So you can start thinking of your answer if you haven't thought of it yet. In the meantime, you know, this is really a conversation about a woman's right to choose. And that right to choose covers so many different aspects, meaning you can choose to, you can choose not to. We've got a caller on the line who wants to share uh, her thoughts on where she went in this. Anita, welcome to VON. What's on your mind this morning? Good morning, and thank you for taking my call. Indeed. Hello? Yes, indeed. Go on, please. Okay, okay. I was a high schooler, and I went to a high school in the suburb of Chicago uh, called Harvey. And when I was a grade ahead of myself when I started school, and I took went to summer school. I had a lot of advanced classes because of that. So I was like 14 taking junior level English and things like this. And I graduated at 16. But when I came in, I noticed there were a lot into high school. I noticed a lot of girls were getting pregnant freshman year of high school. And what made me decide how to deal with this was seeing them pregnant. I never saw a girl. I saw her before the pregnancy and then I would find out she was pregnant. And then she was always miserable. But these girls carried their babies, and I actually saw one of the mothers, and she told me, you know, how everything was fine and things like this. And we knew the guys that they were with, and the guys stuck around, too. But I don't know what else happened after that. Well, I decided when I heard the religion of Islam that I would prefer, also, wait a minute, around these pregnancies, there was a lot of other children were ditching school. They were drinking. They were using marijuana. I don't know what else they were using. And then they would have parties, and then there were guys there selling, you know, I guess drugs to make money to please the girls. So a lot of this is going around the teenage scene of, you know, un- unwanted pregnancy, right? So I decided uh, I finished high school. I was in college, and I met a girl, and she t- took me to the Muslim uh, community center in Chicago, and I was taught about families and about breastfeeding and things like this and that a, man, a woman and a man needs to be together when it has children and, you know, it would be better for the child. But I don't hear that being taught. And this is why I'm upset because I chose Islam. I did not choose um, uh, abortion. And I'm not criticizing people for feeling like that, but... Some people do choose other things, and I would like to see these things offered to them also that children need a mother and father, and there's reasons why biologically, if nothing else, the children need to be with their families. And, you know, the nursing period of a child with no teeth, you know, would require a mother to be present. 
Anita, thank you for t- calling in and sharing that testimony. Uh, I think that, well, uh, any of you ladies want to respond to Anita's comments? Yeah, this is Paula. Anita, thank you so much for sharing that story. It's it's really important to hear, and we appreciate it. And I think you hit on a couple of things. I think choice, right, and making the choice that is best for you. I think education is is key. And at Planned Parenthood of Illinois, we are uh, one of the largest provider of sex sexual health education across the state and across the country. And I want to I want to I want to break that down. I want to impact that just for a second. So our educators work in schools with social service organizations, professional organizations and faith organizations with the goal of helping people, young people and others develop healthy responsible attitudes and behaviors regarding sexuality. Um, you know, one of the most popular uh, things that we did over the course of the pandemic was to have a virtual education session, a series of seven about uh, having healthy conversations with young people. And we covered topics like sex and reproduction, gender identity, sexually explicit materials, and more. And then if I could just end on this note, our health centers across the state do provide information. We have social workers, and we listen to our patients, and we provide our patients with information about a variety of options, including, for example, um, the information about uh, abortion care and what that's like, but also information if they're interested in perhaps pursuing adoption. So we do provide our our, our uh, patients with a wide array of information about a variety of all options. So thank you again for sharing your story. Yeah, options. Are, uh, Rufus? Are going, yes. Um, I also want to add that on the policy side in Illinois, we have done a lot to uh, reflect our value that everyone should be making that personal decision for themselves and that only you can make the decision that's best for you and your family. Therefore, in 2019, we pushed for the passage of the Reproductive Health Act. I know in the media it got a lot of attention because it protects the right to make decisions around abortion um, and will protect it even if the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade. So in Illinois, the right to abortion will remain. But at the very beginning of that law, it outlines that all of your decisions around reproductive health care are fundamental rights. And that includes your decisions around whether or not you use birth control. You can choose to use it, not to use it. That includes sterilization. Uh, It also includes your decisions about pregnancy and continuing a pregnancy. It was very important that we make sure in our state law that all the decisions around your reproductive and sexual health care are considered your rights and that you should be making them and that politicians shouldn't be making them for you. We've got some more callers who want to get into the conversation. Uh, Let me welcome Linda to the line. Linda, good morning and welcome to VON. What's on your mind today? Well, hello, Rufus. Yes. Yes, you know, I wanted to talk to you, and this is my first time calling your show, but I'll get a chance to talk with you later. But I'm going to speak on the um, this issue of abortion. Every 
woman has a right to determine what's going to happen with her body and when she wants to start a family. Now, I had a baby at 15. This was before, long before Roe versus Wade and uh, long before, well, a couple of years before birth control pill. My so-called mother forced me to have this child. I had only been living with her for six months. I was somewhere else and doing quite well. But be that as it may, I want to bring up the issue that children and babies have babies too. When I'm talking about a baby, I'm talking about a child between the ages of 9 and 12. Teenagers have baby their children, and I'm talking about from the ages of 12 to the uh, uh, 13 to the age of consent, depending on what state you live in. I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. When you have a baby and you're young, it, it changes your life entirely. I realize that every case is different, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of things in, involved here, and the younger the child, the more complicated it is, it, it is and I think that the women will, uh, will agree to that. I went on and got away from my egg donor, and, you know, the community took me in, and I, you know, obtained a bachelor's and master's degree, and... Um, 45 hours of postgraduate work in conjunction with a real estate license. My uh, son, I had him in 18, and that was it. I was able to get birth control pills then. His oldest daughter is now an attorney. So we did, you know, pretty well, notwithstanding that the odds was against us. And my son has a successful business, and my daughter is an educator. But... I think that every person has a right to choose, and those that don't feel that way, it's not your business. Bye-bye, Rufus. (laughs) Linda, thank you, and I appreciate your call. And and you wanted to talk with me, so call back sometime, and we'll do just that. Uh, Let's take Rosita's call as well. Good morning, Rosita, and welcome to VON. What's on your mind today? Yes, good morning. Thank you for taking my call, Rufus. I am listening to this conversation and very saddened at it because what I think we're missing in this age of sexualizing children and sticking condoms in their hands when they're 10. There used to be a time when we looked at other alternatives as far as abstinence and uh, those kinds of things that we actually taught. And uh, from from a, a religious perspective, we raised our children that way. The society is changing. But, and, it, and there really are some horrible consequences due to that change. I want to talk about abortion, and I actually know many women that have used abortion as birth control. And there are psychosomatic effects of not only having uh, abortion, but we talked about uh, premarital sex at a very early age. The act of sex is uh, their consequences. People are acting like you can just do this stuff, and especially for girls. And um, you can interact and have these relationships, and hey, it's over when you finish. When you go through the process, I have watched women who have mental issues as a result of using abortion as birth control. And uh, I think it's a sad thing. Why are we pushing uh, education as 
far as, uh, you know, people talk about, I heard uh, congressmen say, oh, well, you know, when I was a kid, uh, I was had to go to Mexico. Those were years ago. That was years ago when women did not have access to birth control. Why not we, if you're going to push premarital sex at a very early age, why not we uh, pushing birth control as another? Because, you know, years ago, like my, my mother, birth control wasn't available. So as we have progressed, why aren't we educating our young women more if that is a better alternative and then we need to uh, consider the psychosomatic effect of our actions because it doesn't just end when i uh you know when you go and you have an abortion you it doesn't just end there and so we know what about the aftercare what about the mental uh, uh, trauma that women face? Nobody is talking about that. The worst thing that a woman can that uh, a woman can do is to lose a child, and compound that by the worst thing a person can do to another person is to murder that person. And women are not. Uh, capable of really understanding the psychosomatic effects, and sometimes it is their lives. So I just wanted to add that to it. It isn't just something that you do and think it's over. Okay. Rosita, I appreciate that and appreciate those thoughts. I think that as you point to the fact that this is the worst thing a woman can do is to lose a child. Speaking from the perspective of a man, uh, we feel the exact same way. You mentioned a number of points, and we didn't get into into most of those uh, because that's not – we were talking about it from a different uh, lens, but I'm sure that our guests have some comments on that. This conversation we're having about the Supreme Court, Roe v. Wade, and – what rights it may be giving to states. We're talking with Paula Thornton Greer, the Chief External Affairs Officer from Planned Parenthood Illinois, Bridget Leahy, the Senior Director of Public Policy from Planned Parenthood Illinois, Abigail Abrams and Madeline Carlisle, both political writers for Time Magazine, and they wrote a very interesting article on this case, uh, the Supreme Court's Texas abortion case could give states more power than ever. We just had a couple of callers, Anita and Rosita. I'm sorry, Linda and Rosita. Um, you, you ladies want to comment on their their um, their comments? This this is Paula. I'm happy to, and I I think um, Paula. I knew you were going to comment. I don't know why we had the silence, but go on, please. <laughs> I don't know how you knew I was going to comment. I do want to thank them for calling in and sharing their their stories and their perspectives because what they are feeling is very real. However, I will note that is why at Planned Parenthood of Illinois, we believe that education is so critically important. You know, we believe that arming, equipping people with information about healthy relationships, responsible attitudes and behaviors regarding sexuality is that thing that is going to provide them with the tools to walk down their own path, whatever that may be. There is so much misinformation. I'm the mother 
my youngest right now is 17. And there is so much misinformation out there, so much. Um, it's amazing what one can, can hear, the factually inaccurate information on the Internet or walking through the halls of the school or, or community center. We want to make sure that we get the fact-based information, all the channels, all the options in the hands of our, our young people. And that's why, quite frankly, one of the reasons Planned Parenthood is one of the most trusted providers across you know, the state and the country. And importantly, the education, as, as was mentioned in both cases, is critically important. And here, the real conversation ultimately is about the right to choose. In this case, as you all have pointed out, and certainly I think Bridget pointed it out first, that what's moved up to the Supreme Court at this point is the enforcement aspect of this. And during the break, um, my producer, D'Angelo, came in and we're speaking about, you know, one, Texas. Texas is just an amazing, interesting place, and perhaps we should allow them to secede. But... Um, the notion of how this comes up really smacks and is so reminiscent of the slave catcher laws when anyone could catch someone who was free and the way in which this stuff comes is so um, it's the reason that we have to understand history because it's so repugnant as we think about how this what this is and why this is and how it's moving and how they came up with it absolutely I think that is a great uh Comparison, it absolutely is. It's, you know, it is repugnant, and we're doing everything that we can uh, to to fight it. Because look, you know, this is not going to stay just with with Texas, right? Just if I'm not mistaken, just three years ago, twenty six states, I think, were poised to move to ban abortion, putting at least maybe 10 or 11 million women, trans men, non-binary and gender non-conforming people at risk of losing access to abortion. This Texas, again, I said it before, is a very sharp tip of the iceberg. You know, we could lose access to abortion overall. And if we think it just stops, as you, as you alluded to earlier, with abortion, we're all very sadly mistaken about that because if we just look back over the past couple of years, there have been movements to, as somebody was mentioning, just birth control. There have been movements to, to prohibit access to birth control. So we have to keep a very, very careful eye on this. And I really encourage your listeners to learn more. And one way that they can learn more, Rufus, is the text um, SB8 for Senate Bill 8. It is SB8 to 22422 uh, if they would like to learn more information and get involved. I want to come back and ask, guys, we wrap up, Madeline and Uh, Abigail, because they conclude their article with comments about um, what state and federal lawmakers may be able to do if this law is allowed to continue as it is and why it's so important to look at it at the Supreme Court level, particularly as it's been expedited to a November 1st review. So uh, can you uh, please comment on on that? 
Yeah, so, you know, if the Supreme Court um, does allow the uh, federal government to sue to challenge this law and allows the state and um, other lawmakers to challenge it, you know, then they will be able to move forward and try to continue um, suing in the lower courts to stop this law from going into effect. But if the Supreme Court says that these other uh lawsuits cannot go forward, that's really the thing that would allow this SBA law in Texas to um, stand as is and would then allow other states, like you all were just talking about, to, you know, use this model of law um, to ban abortion in other places or those other issues that we talked about before. And the Department of Justice um, has filed a lawsuit, or in its lawsuit, argues that this argument in SB8 is, quote, as breathtaking as it is dangerous, unquote. And it's deeply concerned that if the court does rule this way, it could immediately have wide-reaching implications. Um, and the ruling could come after oral arguments at November 1st at any time, even potentially before the Mississippi abortion case is heard in December. So I have to ask the person here with the crystal ball, Bridget, what's going to happen? <laughs> well, um, as I said earlier, you never want to predict what justices may decide. However, we know that the court has dramatically shifted in its makeup since the Trump administration. When Donald Trump ran for office, he made it very clear, transparently clear, more so than any other president before him, that if he were elected, he would appoint anti-abortion justices to the court. He did that. Uh, we could go into whether or not um, the Senate, uh, you know, uh, played games with that. They definitely denied President Obama his nominee. Uh, but this is where we are today, where the court has shifted, and now we have a much more conservative court. And so we're extremely concerned that, if not with this uh, case that's coming with Texas, that the Mississippi case, which will be argued on December 1st, that that could be the case that would either overturn Roe, or if they decide that they won't completely overturn the law, they could hollow it out so completely that it's virtually unrecognizable and allow states to impose almost any kind of restriction that they want on access to abortion. It will be very interesting to see how they base their decision because, as I said at the very beginning of our discussion, Roe v. Wade is founded on this idea of a right to privacy, um, which includes your own bodily autonomy when it comes to your private health care decisions and some of the most personal decisions you may make about your life. This right to privacy actually stems from before Roe v. Wade to the Webster decision. Um, uh, and I'm sorry, not the Webster decision, another decision that has to do with the right to use birth control. So as Paula mentioned, um, this right to privacy and Roe v. Wade is about more than abortion. It is about your ability to make medical decisions regarding when or if to have a child. 
And if the court starts messing with that precedent, the effect could be wide ranging, just as if the court were to um, take a different view on this kind of vigilante justice way of enforcing it. Uh, These laws have the um, potential of opening a huge Pandora's box and changing the way we look at our decisions around health care and around our decisions on reproductive health. And this is why our votes matter. Uh, Madeline Carlisle, Bridget Leahy, Paula Thorne Greer, Abigail Adams, thank Abrams, I'm sorry. Thank you all so much for your time and your talent and helping to elevate this conversation with us here this morning. We so appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Be well.